0: Thanks, Pastor Dan. It's great to be here. One one correction to the bio is that um, I have been married 20 years, not 30. I didn't get married when I was I was out of my teen years when I got married, so there is there is that. But um, thank you, brother. It's great to get to be here. It's great to be at Calvary Bible, and so good morning to all of you. Happy Thanksgiving week as we begin that week, and so I do bring greetings from my wife of 20 years, Heather, and our. Five children, they're all back in Dubai at this point, and so they wish they could be here with us as well. And so we, uh, we have the privilege of living in Dubai for these last six years. We're in Dubai because the world is in Dubai. We have, uh, right, we're right there in the center of the least reached part of the world. We have a city where 90% of the population comes from other countries and where God is at work. God is growing the church, God is bringing people to faith, and as the gospel spreads through the church there and people are saved. We have the opportunity to train them up and to send them out to other countries around there to plant churches. And so it's a great privilege to be a part of that ministry. The last couple of years have been kind of crazy with this pandemic and all the changes that that brings about. But uh, by God's grace, the ministry has grown even during that time. And so the seminary is now over 150 students and we've graduated our first class and many more are right behind them. And so we're excited to see the word of the Lord continue to go forth from Dubai from the United Arab Emirates and to the end of the earth, and that's possible through your partnership. We're very grateful for all of you, and while I'm talking about that, I should say if you want to be praying for us, we have these prayer cards with a smiling picture of our family. There's a pile of them there on the on the front pew. Come grab one after the service if you would like, but we're really grateful for all of you at Calvary. Let me Uh, Read our text. You can turn to Matthew chapter 5. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. And so I'm going to read this passage, and then I'll pray for our time in God's Word. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And let's pray as we go to God's Word. Father God, what a privilege it is to be at this church. We thank you for Calvary Bible Church. We thank you for the good ministry you're doing in this church and through this church, in this place, in Fort Worth and beyond Fort Worth. Thank you for the partnership that we have in the gospel, Father. I pray that these brothers and sisters would be encouraged by your word this morning, and I pray that all of us would be convicted as we see the message of this text, as we see the joy that our Savior is offering to us. May, uh, may change take place in our hearts as we go from here and we represent Christ in this world. Be glorified in us as we look at your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I wish the world were different. Do you? You know, the other day, I was in Dubai. And in Dubai, we have the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world. And somebody invited me to have breakfast at the Burj Khalifa. And inside this building, there's this restaurant at the very top. It's the tallest restaurant or the highest restaurant in the world. And so we went over there and we're having breakfast up there. And looking out this huge window, I could see the entire city spread out before me. So everywhere there's, there's skyscrapers and we see minarets from mosques and there's the highways coming past and little tiny cars down there like we're seeing them from an airplane. And we can see so many windows and so many people going about their lives and about their business. And as I looked at all of that, I was overwhelmed by the reality that this city where I live, this place is lost. All these people I can see, they're, they're entwined in the deceptiveness of false religion. And that that deception leads to so much cruelty and to injustice and to suffering. And, and that's true in Dubai. That's true throughout the, the 1040 window, this least reached part of the world where we live. In, and I wish it were different. I want it to change. And then I come home. I come back to the, to the U.S., back where I'm from. And, and I look around and I see more lostness. I see a different kind of lostness. I look around and I see everywhere a celebration of what God has called sin. I, I can see the, the elevation of foolishness and the hatred for wisdom. And even in many churches, there's, there's anger and there's division and there's fighting. And, and I wish it were different. I wish it were different. And so what, what should I do? What should I do? What, what should we do? How, how should we change the world? Because that's what we want, right? We don't want to just accept the way things are and say, oh yeah, it's kind of bad, it's broken, oh well. We want to make a difference. We want to bring change. We want to see that, that darkness pushed back. We want to see Christ glorified. We want to see people turning from darkness to light to glorify their Father who's in heaven. So how are we going to do that? And I think in this text, in Matthew 5, Jesus is going to tell us, he's going to tell us what kind of people he uses to change the world. Of course, Matthew 5, 3 to 16, the verses we read, this is the beginning to a much larger sermon, the Sermon on the Mount that goes from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. But I think these verses, the, the first 16 verses by themselves, they're kind, of a, they're kind of an introduction and they're kind of giving you like a separate sermon in their own right, a little encapsulation of all that's to follow in the larger sermon. And, you know, y'all have been in church, and you've heard lots of sermons from Pastor Dan and from others, and you've probably heard plenty of sermons that, you know, kind of make a few points, and then sort of in conclusion, here's a a few thoughts of application. And, you know, I I teach preaching at our seminary, and I tell my students, you know, it's good to have maybe like two main points for your sermon, or maybe three, or sometimes four, but you don't really want to get beyond that, because that gets confusing and long and, and all this. But then I read this passage, Jesus's sermon, and I I'm pretty sure Jesus has about nine points right here, followed by some points of application. So what we're going to do is we're just going to follow Jesus' own outline, and we're going to see this nine-point sermon followed by two points of application, and we're asking the question, with whom does God change the world? And so look at the text. He, he kind of gets this crowd together. He gets his disciples together. He begins teaching, and notice the first word, verse 3. The first word is Blessed. Blessed blessed is the the key word in this section. It begins this sentence. It begins each of the next eight sentences. So that's where we get the name Beatitudes. Beatitude just means to bless. And so this word blessed, it means to be in a state of good fortune, to be satisfied, to be happy. And so, okay, how how can we change the world? And we we see right away that Jesus' answer has much less to do with your intelligence or with your skills but it's about some kind of external demeanor that flows out of an internal disposition. You, you are, in a word, happy. That's what the word means. And he says it again. He says that nine times you are happy. Why are Jesus' disciples happy? Well, you're happy, first of all, this is our first point. You're happy because you bring nothing to God. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And friends, that's the good news of the gospel right there. Because all false religion, whatever the religion is, it it has in common the goal of accumulating spiritual wealth, right? So so Muslims, Mormons, even confused Christians sometimes, they they live on this treadmill of doing enough good works, of following the rules as they see it, and then gathering all of that up and being able to show it to God one day and say, look God, look, look at what I've accumulated, look at what I've done, look here is my wealth but the Bible says you can never do enough. The Bible says you can't get enough wealth because one sin is enough to condemn you before God's perfect righteousness. So therefore that quest to do enough and to be enough, is going to lead to pride and to misery. But, but there's this upside down reality of the gospel, which is that salvation comes not by gaining spiritual wealth, but by declaring spiritual bankruptcy. By admitting that your own works can never be enough, that only the perfect son of God dying in your place can forgive your sin. It's not the healthy who need a physician, Jesus said, but who? But the sick. And guess what? I'm sick, you're sick, we're all sick, but we have a physician. We have this physician, so when we cry out, God have mercy on me, a sinner, when you turn to that physician in repentance and in faith, Jesus is saying, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So you're happy because you bring nothing to God. Happy are the poor in spirit. But he goes on, number two, he says, you're happy because your grief will end. Happy because your grief will end. Just think of it this way. Imagine that, that it's like the biggest football game of the year. Okay, so you're, you're cheering for your team, and you've you got to win this game to go into the playoffs. So the whole season's on the line right here, and it's fourth quarter, two-minute warning, and your team is losing by... 70 points. And here you are on the sidelines, and you got a big smile on your face, and you're cheering, and you're singing, we are the champions. What? You're not the champions. Your season is over. You're you're, you're the losers. If if I'm cheering happily when I'm down by 10 points, I guess I'm optimistic. But if I'm cheering down 70 points at the two-minute warning, I'm Deluded. I'm naive. I, I don't understand the game. And, and the question is: Are Christians, when we talk about Christian happiness, are we fools? Are we like that person? Are we, are we, are we not understanding the way the world is? Well, I don't think so. I think if, if we, if I think we're in good company with Jesus, because Jesus says, "Blessed that is happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted." And, and Jesus, He's not naive. Jesus is not in denial. Jesus is not toxically happy. Jesus, of all people, knows how corrupted the world is. Jesus knows the suffering of disease and, and of loss and of sin. And so as his followers, Jesus' people, we do mourn. We do grieve. We, we, we suffer in this world and we weep and we, and we weep with those who weep. And, and really, Christians ought to be the most realistic people in the world because we have a theology that explains the brokenness around us. We know that this world and our rebellion against God, it's not the place it was supposed to be. So so we weep, so we we mourn. But as Christians, we can mourn with hope. We, We can weep, you might say, with happiness. And we can do that because as we weep, we're anticipating that day in the presence of the Lamb when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so when we weep, we can do so by faith because we know that we will be comforted. Now, you may have been taught that there's a difference between happiness on the one hand and joy on the other. And so sometimes people will teach, well, happiness is like this kind of worldly temporary thing based on like how good your day is going and like whether you got a good cup of coffee this morning but joy, joy is different. Joy is more godly and more spiritual, and it's deeper down, and it doesn't relate to your present circumstances. And so when you have that distinction, you can kind of imagine this, this Christian, and like my face is really angry, and I'm really grumpy, and you know, and you say, how are you doing? And I'm like, it's like, well, I, <clears throat> I got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart. It's like, where? Like, deep, deep down in my heart. And you know some people are living this way. And, but, but see, Scripture doesn't teach that distinction. It doesn't say that happiness is a different thing from joy. They're synonyms. If that distinction was there, we would expect that Jesus maybe would use the word joy here. You can be joyful when you mourn. You won't be happy when you mourn, but maybe you can be joyful. But he doesn't say joy. He says happiness. He repeats the word happiness. You're happy even as you mourn. And so if we say, no, there's these two different things, we're not as radical as Jesus is because his way is different. His way is upside down. The the sad are happy. And he goes on, number three, he says you're happy because you're not in control. Because verse five, he says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. The meek, what what are the meek? We don't use that word so often. I think the opposite of meek is is someone who's got to be in control, the control freak that, you know, the, the person who wants to advance their own little kingdom by making everything just the way that they want it to do by kind of gathering up resources, by not letting people get in the way of their building of their own little kingdom. That's the opposite of meek. That's the person that we can all be tempted to be in one way or another. But see, when, when life and when, when the world is about me gaining and maintaining my control... Then my happiness depends on me maintaining that control, on me keeping it on. And then any deviation from my expectations is going to cause anger or maybe fear or depression. But if I'm meek, see, meekness is the recognition that I'm not in control, which means that God is in control. It's recognizing that I'm not independent and powerful. I'm dependent, and I'm powerless. I'm dependent on God's plans and God's provision and God's providence for, for every single breath. And then I can, uh, that I know that, that, yes, the world is going to change. I know that, that all ultimately is going to come under the domination of Christ as Lord, but that change isn't going to happen because of my skills, because I force it, but because, because God will do it. And when I recognize that in meekness, I, I, I understand that we're just servants, all of us. We're just, we're just messengers. We're, 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 we're not the drivers. We're the, the passengers that are serving the Lord. And that's meek. And in that meekness, Jesus says, you'll find happiness. So Jesus says, first of all, you're happy because you bring nothing to God. Second, you're happy because your grief will end. Third, you're happy because you're not in control. And fourth, we could say you're happy because... You want what you need. Verse 6 Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger and thirst. What a vivid picture. You just imagine Dubai and sand dunes, and you're out in the desert with the camels, and it's 150 degrees, and you're thirsty. You you need that drink of water, or else you're going to die. And Jesus is saying that, that thirst, that, that hunger is tied to happiness. And he's also recognizing that, that everyone's thirsting for something. We all have something that we're longing for and desiring for. But what our sinful nature tends to hunger for are things that do not lead to happiness. Sometimes we're, we're prone to thirst after sin or after opportunity to indulge our fleshly desires, or or sometimes we want, you know, things that seem okay, just more, more property, more wealth, more comforts, more possessions. But Jesus is saying that happiness is not in those hungers. When you hunger for the things that this world offers, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're not going to obtain that thing, and therefore the hunger continues, or you will obtain that thing, but the hunger will still be there. He goes, well, it must be something else. I must need something else. That hunger is not satisfied. But Jesus is saying that the deepest longing of his people, of his disciples, is for a right relationship with God and with others. I think that's the righteousness that he's talking about in the context. He's saying that you're longing to to know me, to relate rightly to me and to my people. And, And if that's your hunger... That's a hunger that's going to lead to happiness because it's a hunger that God has promised to satisfy. So you're happy because you want what you need. He goes on, number five, you're happy because you don't get what you deserve. Number seven, uh, sorry, verse seven. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is I committed the crime, but I didn't have to do the time. Mercy is, I, I got off the hook. I was forgiven. And we all want mercy, but many of us don't live with a merciful orientation. And Jesus is saying that, that, that see, there's a way to live, where we're keeping track. We're keeping track of everyone's transgressions against us. We're we're tallying sins. We're, We're saying, I know the ways in which you're wrong. I know the things that you haven't done for me. I know the things that I wanted from you that you didn't deliver on. And when we're just oriented towards making sure everyone else knows how wrong they are about everything, we can't help but live in frustration. But Jesus offers his disciples the freedom from that frustration. He offers them the happiness of not keeping track. He says that that we can treat people with mercy because we believe that our sins will be forgiven, that we will receive God's mercy through the blood of Christ. So he goes on, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God and you all know, you're, you're a well-taught church, that the Jews were very concerned with ceremonial purity, with external purity, with following all the rituals and the ceremonies. But throughout this sermon, Jesus is pointing to a different kind of purity, an inward purity, a purity of heart that comes from the inside out. And the idea here is this purity of heart that we have a single-minded, undivided devotion to God from our hearts, from our heart we're serving the Lord in a way that affects every area of our life. That nothing is getting in the way of that. Nothing is blemishing that. Nothing is causing impurity in our devotion to God. We could say it this way number six, this is point six that you're happy because you know what's most important. You're happy because you know what's most important. In other words, you know, he's thinking about hidden sin, about a life that's lived in the darkness. And he's recognizing that that's a life of misery, a life of grief. But on the other hand, there's this this life we can have that's a life of living in the light, a life of living among God's people, of not feeling the need to hide or to perform because we know that every sin is forgiven and atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, that's the life of freedom. That's the life of the unburdened conscience. That's the life of, of joy that sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's a life of happiness. So you're happy because you know what's most important Then seventh. You're happy because you're like God. Because you're like God. And because when we say, I wish the world were different, a biblical way to express that thought is to say that we're recognizing in the world a lack of peace. The world is without peace, because peace in the Bible, shalom in Hebrew, it's not just the idea of we stopped fighting, like imagine, you know, Russia and Germany are at war and they are shooting at each other and then they stop shooting, therefore peace. No, it's not just that, the war is over but that that there's a condition of wholeness, that things are the way they're supposed to be, that everything has been mended and everything is is in its right place and its right relationship. That's the idea of peace. And Jesus is saying that, that his disciples are those who are looking for that absence of shalom. They're looking for those places in which the world is not the way God created it to be. And they're seeking to find those areas of brokenness and they're trying to mend them. And of course, we can do that in a, in a temporal way, in an immediate way, by opposing injustice, by helping people who are hurting. But even more so, we can do that in an ultimate way. As it talks about in Isaiah, he says that those who uh, publish peace, who publish shalom, are those who are bringing this good news that your God reigns. So we're bringing the good news, but in either case, wherever we live, whether we're in North Texas or in Dubai, what Jesus is saying is that happiness is not found in closing your eyes to the world and pretending like the world is a better place than it is. It's not about turning away from the brokenness of the world, but about turning towards it and being God's instruments of change amidst it. We seek peace in the world, not because we're superheroes that have a God complex, but because our God is a bringer of shalom. Our God is a bringer of peace. And so as we love our neighbors and as we address the brokenness around us and as we preach the good news to everyone, in that way, we're being like our Father. We're resembling our Father. We're acting like God, just like my sons physically resemble me. As we are proclaiming peace, we are sons of our Father. We look like God. We are being like Him. And so if we could kind of summarize all that we've seen so far, Jesus is saying that when you're my disciple, because that's who he's talking to. He's talking to his disciple. He's saying that when you're my disciple, you know, being like God, being seen by God, being in relation to God, having the hope of the kingdom of God, these are the things that matter. That happiness is found through the channel of your relationship to God. That all of the other ways that we look for happiness are not the true path to happiness. And we need to know that. We need to see that because the, this broken world offers us a different kind of happiness. This world that we live in offers this false happiness that seduces people, it seduces Christians by saying that happiness is found in you being you. Happiness is found in you pursuing your sense of identity as long as it's one of the ones that are acceptable this week, right? Or the world teaches us that happiness is found in winning. Happiness is found in in being right in winning the argument and crushing your opponents and showing how foolish everybody else is, that you're right, everyone else is wrong, and evil, happiness is found in winning like that. Or the world tells us, you know, really what the world is saying, the world is calling us, through all of its various messaging, it's calling us to be the opposite of the person that Jesus is describing in these Beatitudes. Beatitudes because the world is saying, look out for yourself, not for others. It's saying, you know, yeah, be a Christian, but kind of keep that on the side, on the periphery of your life. It's saying, punish your enemies. It's saying, hunger and thirst for a nicer car. It's saying, be in charge, don't be meek. It's saying, get rid of these things that make you mourn. It's saying, be rich in spirit. It's calling us to the opposite of what Jesus is calling us to for happiness. But see, Christians are enticed by this worldly version of happiness where we're drawn in by this sort of chintzy kind of superficial version of happiness Or, or what happens oftentimes in people I meet is that Christians kind of become they kind of come to a place in their heart where they're okay with not being happy at all they kind of say you know like here we are and these are hard times and the world is against us and the, the government is against us and they, they hate God and they hate Jesus and they hate the Bible and here our country is going to hell in a handbasket and so let's just spend our days and our Thanksgiving feast just kind of commiserating the miserable state of the, co- the country and talking to each other about all the problems that are out there and arguing with people who don't see it the same way we do. And what we're doing when we were kind of enjoying that misery we're acting like we're the exception. We're 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 you know we know that we, here we have this Bible and there's like dozens, if not hundreds, of verses in here that are talking about the the happiness that characterizes God's people. But see what we're we're really saying, if we even if we don't say it out loud, is we're saying that, you know, these Bible people, they didn't live in 2021. They didn't, know, they didn't have this global pandemic. They didn't have all the idiots that we have in our country. They didn't have the, the pain and, and the suffering that, that I genuinely have. And so we think, surely I, me, am not expected to be happy. But Jesus is going to correct us. Because we get to his eighth point. We could summarize it this way. We could, we could say, 8th hey, you're happy even when people hurt Christians. Because verse 10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on, number 9, verse 11, we could say, you're you're happy even when people hate Christians. Because verse 11 says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So what does that tell us, y'all? It tells us that Jesus is not speaking to people who live in some kind of Christian utopia. He's not imagining a situation where his followers have green grass and white picket fences and a nice place where all the laws correspond to biblical morality and Christians are the most respected people in the society where people are regularly walking up to you and saying, what must I do to be saved? He's, he's not thinking of that situation. No, the situation that Jesus has in mind for his followers is when we're claiming to follow Jesus and belong to a church and having a concern to obey scripture, it, it's going to get you excluded. And it's going to get you lied about. And it might get you fired from your job and it might make you have your, your house or your business or your, your, your liberty taken unjustly. It's that kind of a situation. Or, or maybe, you know, it seems clear he's even thinking of situations that are even more extreme situations where, where following Jesus might get you physically hurt physically abused, persecuted, imprisoned, even, even martyred, as still happens in the world today. That's the kind of situation Jesus is looking at. And you know, I tell my, my hermeneutic students at the seminary, I say, hey, when we're studying a text, well, one of the things we want to look for is the emphasis. Where, what's the main idea? Where is the biblical author trying to bring our focus in a particular text? And there's different ways that can happen. One way is, repetition, and we've already seen that in this passage, that the word happy is repeated nine times. And so this is a passage about happiness. It's about the joyful demeanor of Jesus' followers. But as we come to these last two Beatitudes, we can see even more emphasis in a couple of different ways. First of all, they're at the end, and when we're making a list, and, you know, we usually emphasize the end. Like if I tell my kids, hey, do you want to go for lunch to, you know, McDonald's or to Taco Bell or to Heim Barbecue? You know, I want to go to Heim. You know, I'm I'm emphasizing that last one. And so we do that. We'll make a list. And so the, the last one on the list is emphasized. But we also see these last two are longer. The seventh beatitude, the one about peacemakers, it's only about seven words in the original language where the others are similarly kind of short and succinct. But when we get to the eighth beatitude, the one about persecution, suddenly it's 12 words long. The ninth Beatitude is 16 words long. So these last two are about double the length of the other ones, and there's two of them. So we've got focus here. We've got emphasis. Our 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 minds and our eyes are supposed to be drawn to these last two to say, okay, this is what he's driving at. This is what Jesus is getting at, what he's been building up to, what he wants to emphasize, and what he's trying to emphasize then is that this. Happiness he's been describing, this, this, this otherworldly happiness that distinguishes the demeanor of his disciples, this happiness that comes from bringing nothing to God and expecting the end of grief and living without control and most wanting what you most need and not getting what you deserve and knowing what's most important and living in anticipation of that day when you'll be like God, get that happiness, right? What, what he's emphasizing then is that this happiness he's describing, it's still there, when people hate Christians. And this happiness is still there even when people hurt Christians. He's saying, see that. Know that. Emphasize that. And I want you to see also that each of these beatitudes has there's there's a set structure to them. They all have the same structure. That each of the Beatitudes, they, they all have a statement about happiness, like blessed are the meek, and then a reason for the happiness. It begins with the word for, like for they shall inherit the earth. And so for most of them, notice how that second part, the reason, it's in the future tense. You see that, for they shall be, is how my Bible puts it. So we're looking to the future. We're happy because of this future that we, by faith, believe in, because we're looking towards the return of Christ, toward the kingdom of Christ, toward an eternity in the presence of Christ. We're happy because of that, so we're looking futureward. But see this, for the first beatitude and the last beatitude, the bookends, if you will. The reason is not future, but it's present. The motivation is something that's true right now. Now, in your life today, and for both bookends, it's the same. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Calvary Bible Church, I want you to know this today. I want you to know that this is true of you today. That if you are in Christ, yours today is the kingdom of heaven. That if you've come to Jesus with poverty of spirit, and if you've said, I am a sinner, I deserve judgment in hell, and only by Jesus dying in my place and taking my sin upon himself can I be saved. So I'm crying out to Jesus as Savior. I'm following Jesus as Lord. If that's you, then God's word is saying that Jesus is now today. He's your king. And that today you live as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, not just as a future anticipation, but as a present reality. And Jesus is saying them that for his disciples, for his, the citizens of his kingdom, that as you go about your life, your emotion and your spirit and your demeanor are to be marked much less by the environment in which you now live, in the things you hear on TV and on the talk radio and the conversations that are happening around you, you're marked much less by those things and much more by your identity, not your national identity or your racial identity or your sexual identity, but but your eternal identity, that yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's like in Luke 10.20 that Jesus' disciples were They'd gone out, he'd sent them out to do some ministry, two by two. And so in in Luke 10, they come back and they report to Jesus, things have gone well, they're excited. Um, And he says this, he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And, And he's saying to them that when things are going great, if business is prospering, if your family is healthy, if everything's good in your life, he said you should be happy even more because you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And what that means then is that when things aren't going well, when disaster is happening and your health fails and loss mounts and the whole world is against the church, you're still happy because you're still a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is teaching these things, and right next to him here is the apostle Peter, And Peter's listening, Peter's getting it, Peter's understanding it, and Peter is shaped by these teachings, by these things. Because think about Peter after the hearing this Sermon on the Mount. Subsequently, Peter witnesses Jesus's persecution, and Jesus's arrest, and Jesus's beatings, and Jesus's execution. He sees all that, and then Jesus rises from the dead. Peter goes out and becomes one of the leaders of the early church. Peter himself is imprisoned. Peter himself is beaten. Peter is Himself is, is suffers much. He sees friends, brothers, persecuted, executed for their faith. He suffers much in the years to come. But 30 years later, thir- three decades after the Sermon on the Mount, we've got Peter writing the book of 1 Peter. And look what he says, 1 Peter 3.14. Look at that text just for a minute. 1 Peter 3.14. 30 years later, Peter writes this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, sound familiar? You will be blessed. You'll be happy. Same word. Even if you suffer, you'll be blessed. Peter's teaching that three decades later. Have no fear of them, he says, nor be troubled. Same book, chapter 4, verse 14. Peter says, But if you're insulted for the name of Christ, guess what? You're happy. You're happy, you're blessed. Why? Because, verse 14, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter's saying this this is a permanent happiness. This is a fearless happiness. This is a resilient happiness. It's a supernatural happiness that comes from the spirit of God. And so back to Matthew 5, in in the whole passage up to this point, there haven't been any commands. Jesus is just stating facts. He's saying this is true. This is how it is. If you're a Christian, this is true. And so he's given us this nine-point sermon about the kind of happy kingdom citizens through whom he's going to change the world. But it's all kind of like you are, not you do. But then like the good Baptist preacher Jesus is, he's going to wrap it up with a couple of points of application. And so we get to verse 12, Matthew 5, 12, and we see the first imperative verbs in the passage. There's two of them, two commands to clear instructions here and they kind of repeat each other verse 12 rejoice and be glad those are the commands number one rejoice number two be glad why for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you and so okay get this so you're happy right he said nine times you're happy 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 etc he told us why you're happy And so what's the to-do? What's the the so what? Therefore what? You are happy, therefore what? Be happy. Be joyful. What? So so I think Jesus, you know, he's not lost. He's not contradicting himself. He hasn't, you know, misplaced where he is in his notes. But it's kind of like this. It's kind of like a while back. um, I was actually this past summer, I was celebrating my 20th anniversary, not 30th. (laughs) And uh, I was on a, had a little weekend away with my wife, and, you know, we kind of planned the whole thing carefully and booked the room, and I made sure, you know, I had enough money in my bank account to cover, you know, a nice time away. And so first day we get there, and, you know, I go to the ATM and say, okay, like, we're going to go to dinner. I just got to get some money out to, to pay for the dinner. And we're in a different country, so, you know, it's, not, it's all kind of cash-based. So I go to the ATM to withdraw money, you know, put in the PIN. It says, hello, Eric. And I say, I need this much out. And it's like like, card failed, card doesn't work. Oh, no. Oh, okay, it's a, it's a bad ATM. So I go up the block to a different bank, different ATM, try that one, you know, card fails. It doesn't work. So I try all the banks in town. I, I can't get any money out of any bank. something's gone wrong with my ATM card. So then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm anticipating this, you know, nice, leisurely dinner, and suddenly I'm like, well, I got like two bucks in my pocket, so I guess I might get a taco from this guy here on the street. And so, like, even though I, you know, I possessed money, I, I had money, I was in a position of living as if I did not. And see, Jesus is, is saying that, that this is a danger for us. This is a danger for his disciples, that we, we possess all this happiness as kingdom citizens. We possess sufficient happiness to see us through whatever the world might throw at us, but he understands That in this broken world, and especially amidst the kind of persecution and hurt and hate that he's anticipating for his disciples, he's anticipating that we are going to be tempted to live as unhappy people, even though to us belongs the happiness of the kingdom of heaven. So we could summarize the application this way. First application is wherever, wherever you go, whatever they do, wherever you go, whatever they do, prioritize the happiness of Christ's kingdom. Your happiness matters. That's what Jesus is saying. And I think he puts it here. I think he puts it at the front end of the Sermon on the Mount for a reason, because he's going to go on and talk about a lot of other things. He's going to talk about, about anger and about the law and about lust and about divorce and about marriage and about prayer and about righteousness. There's going to be all these things he talks about subsequently in the sermon. And if he hadn't talked about happiness here at the beginning We might think, okay, let's read all the rest of these things. And if we just do all of that stuff, if we just live in a way that's obedient and kind of keeps away from these areas of sin, that we're living the healthy Christian life. Even if our faces are glum. Even if what people hear from us is mostly grumbling and complaining. And even if we just spend most of our days just kind of muddling through we think, well, you know, we're Christians. We go to Calvary Bible Church. We're, we're okay. We're healthy. But Jesus is saying, he's saying that unhappy Christians are unhealthy Christians. Period. Always true. So you've got to find that happiness. In Calvary Bible Church, you've got to prioritize happiness. You've got to, you've got to use it as a, a diagnostic to say, if I'm unhappy, something's wrong in my life my spiritual priorities are disoriented, my influences are out of whack, I've got to strive to find it again. I've got to find that happiness that Christ has given to me. And you're saying, oh, you're just telling me to kind of like close my eyes and buck up and smile? I'm saying, no, Jesus is telling you to rejoice. It's a command, brothers and sisters, and it's a a command that doesn't have any exceptions. There's no COVID exceptions. There's no special cases for unemployment or chronic illness. There's There's no suffering that's too great. There's no opposition that's too strong. No hatred that's too intense because none of that compares to the joy that Jesus has set before us. So this command to rejoice, it's a command that applies to our worst moments when we're suffering unjustly like Jesus did. But of course, it's a command that applies to every other moment in our life as well. Because kingdom citizens, we don't seek out opposition, but we do expect it. And when that opposition comes, our first priority isn't to escape it or to fight it or to mock it, but to maintain our joy in Christ amidst it. George Mueller, you know about George Mueller, 19th century Christian leader. He's known for his life of faith and of prayer. George Mueller wrote this in his journal, this reflection. He said, the point is this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state, how my inner man might be nourished. See, George Mueller prioritized the happiness of Christ's kingdom, friends. Let's prioritize the happiness of Christ's kingdom like that. And then to see Jesus' second and final application, we want to go to verse thirteen to sixteen, quickly. And let's think of it like this: I know this guy. Let's let's call him Jim. He's he's my brother-in-law, and um, Jim he, he he's a prepper. You know what a prepper is? You know he he's he's concerned about the end of the world, the collapse of society, and so he's getting ready for it, and so he's. Got a lot of guns and a lot of ammunition and a lot of knives and gunpowder and fire starters and canned goods and, you know, like his whole garage is full of, I don't even know what, lots of stuff in there. But so one of the things that Jim is getting ready for is the collapse of the international banking system. And so he's taken some of his savings and he's bought gold bars. So he's got all this gold. So one of the challenges is when you have a bunch of gold bars is you got to put them somewhere. And so, you know, where do you put the gold bars? And so, you don't know, want someone to come and steal them. And so his solution is, he's got these big uh, five-gallon paint buckets from Home Depot, and he put the gold bars in the paint buckets down in his basement. And then what he did is he got this 20-pound bag of kitty litter, and he dumped the kitty litter on top of the gold bars. So if the thieves come in there, he's, he's banking, literally, on the idea that they're going to come in there they're going to see the kitty litter and be so disgusted by that never, they never get to the gold. So the gold remains safe. And um, I said all that for some reason. Let me, <laughs> let me just come back to that here in a second. But in, in 13 to 16, Jesus uses these three images, these three pictures, right? we got salt, light, and a city. And with the, this repetition, these repeated images, all three of these images are making fundamentally the same point. And the point is this. Don't hide what you are. Don't hide what you are. Don't, don't make your salt tasteless. Don't put your city in a valley. Don't put your light in a basket. Don't put your gold in the kitty litter. That's what he's saying. So don't hide what you are. So what are you, Calvary Bible Church? Well, he just said, what did he say? You're happy. You're happy, 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 nine times he said it. So you're happy. So be happy. That was the application. Be happy. And then don't hide it. Don't hide that happiness. Be conscious of what you're showing to the world, of how you look to the world, of the demeanor that you show to the world. Don't, don't hide what you are. Don't hide the happiness that is yours in Christ. Because some of us, friends, we're going out there and we have this this aroma of confusion or of hostility or of argumentativeness or of arrogance or of lifelessness. But friend, you are happy. Jesus has said that. And so if you're obeying the command of verse 12, and therefore you're walking with kingdom happiness through every difficulty of life, your aroma, your presence is going to be one of happiness. You're going to be a person who is memorably happy, who is compellingly happy, who is infectiously happy, not because of your personality, because your, you know, of, of, you know, you're so darn likable, but because you're different, because you're weird, because you can't be explained. Because if I know you, I know that things are hard in your life, and I know that work is not going so well, and I know that your politician didn't get elected, and I know that your car got a flat tire, so why are you so happy? It can't be explained. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't hide what you are, because this is a happiness that's here to be shared. So this first application Jesus gave us was that wherever you go, whatever you do, prioritize the happiness of Christ's kingdom, like George Mueller. But a second application would be wherever you go, whatever you do, preach the happiness of Christ's kingdom. Preach that happiness, because guess what? We are here to change the world. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 16 when he says, so that they, that is the world, may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We want the world to be saved. We want the people of Texas to be saved. We want the people of of Dubai and the 1040 window. We want them to come to know Jesus Christ, to bow the knee and give glory to our Father in heaven. That's the great end of our labor and of our lives. And the way it's going to happen, Jesus says, he's going to say it's going to happen when your light so shines, shines in that way before others. Shines in what way, is the question. Shines in the way that isn't hidden. When our light is not hidden, that's when it's going to shine out to the world. And there's certainly more to this light than happiness. There's going to be all that's involved in reflecting the character of God that we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount. But shining that light is certainly not less than showing the happiness that he's just talked about nine consecutive times. So our Lord is telling us that we are happy and we're here to deliver happiness happiness. We're ambassadors of joy. We're messengers of a new world. We're, we, we, we're, we're going to people and we're saying that, 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 friend, I'm inviting you to a new world, a world where there's no mourning and there's no sorrow and there's no pain. And I'm, I'm inviting you to become servants of a king who, who made you and who knows you and who loves you and has designed a way for you to live that is good for you so that you can live now with happiness and with hope and to one day be in his presence before him, blameless and with great joy. So so come away from your false happiness. Come away from this imitation happiness and come, because I know where true happiness can be found. Let me show you where it is. That's our message. And it's a message that doesn't work when it seems like the messengers don't believe it. And so when our priorities are secular, and when our hopes are material, and when our demeanor is embattled, and we say, oh yes, I would be happy if only the Supreme Court decided in our favor, see, then our message is life, but our aroma is death. We've been given gold to share, but we've hidden it under the kitty litter. So when I speak the message of Christ without showing the happiness of Christ, I've communicated a a false message, or at least a misleading message. And I think that's one of the reasons why American Christianity in recent generations has been in decline, because even as we've, you know, contended for many necessary things, what we haven't done very well is shown the world just how good it is to be a Christian, how joyful and how hopeful and how free life can be when sins are forgiven and we're living within the boundaries that God has set for us. How fun marriage and family life can be when we're striving together to glorify God. How hopeful and joyful and sustaining it can be to walk alongside others in a healthy local church. Being a Christian is often not easy, but it can be so very happy. So, Calvary, let's go into all the nations and let's make disciples of Jesus Christ, but let's obey Christ and let's do so as happy people who are proclaiming the happiness of Jesus' kingdom. If you're a Christian in America in 2021, I've got bad news. And the bad news is things don't seem to be getting any better. There seems to be every reason to believe that opposition and hatred will be on the increase. But there's also good news. And the good news that our Savior gives us from this text is that it's precisely in the midst of persecution. It's precisely in those moments when happiness would be least expected externally that his disciples have the clearest and most distinct opportunities to show the peculiar joys of the kingdom of heaven. In Dubai, my wife leads a Bible study over other ladies, and one of the ladies in the study recently went through this this horrible time. Our friend, her, her name is Marissa, she comes from Africa, and she had a husband who physically and verbally abused her for many years, and eventually he walked away from her and her children and divorced her, and she's been through this, this just terrible, hellacious period. And so, so her husband leaves, and as part of the, the divorce process in the UAE, the court mandated that Marissa had to sit with a Local psychologist. She had to go, kind of, for this mental evaluation, I guess, and she had to have several sessions with this Muslim doctor to kind of talk about, I guess, her state of mind. And so this, this so she goes. She didn't. She said, "I didn't want to go, but the court said I had to go, so I went." And so the the Muslim doctor says, "Okay, tell me about your situation." And, and she she said to us later, she said, "You know, I I, I said I, I'm I have to be here, and so I trust the Lord, and so I'm just going to use this as an opportunity to tell my story." And so she tells the guy the story. she talks about how she grew up in Africa, and she came to Dubai, and you know she had this husband. And they were excited about you know making a life and a career and getting, getting rich in Dubai. But then everything fell to pieces. Um, he was the way that he was. he hurt her, he abused her, she went through these terrible circumstances, but only in the darkest moments of her marriage and, and her, her life falling apart. only then did she responded to a friend's invitation to church. Only then did she get a Bible and open it and start reading it. Only, only then did, did God save her. And so she is telling this doctor, she says, you know, I, I wouldn't trade all that I've suffered for what I have in Christ. And in fact, I'm, I'm glad that I've been through all of this because now I know Jesus. And she's talking about Jesus and her hope uh, through Jesus and, and sharing how her faith in Christ has sustained her through all the pain and all the loss. And so they They get to the end of of this session, the first of several sessions, and the Muslim doctor looks at her and says, you know, I don't think you need to come back next week. (laughs) He, He says, I can't help you. And then he says, I need what you have more than you need what I have. And friends, there's a world out there that needs what we have. In this battle for Christian influence in the U.S., it's lost. In the UAE, that battle never began. But the war for the hearts of men and women who are in bondage, deception, and sin continues to rage. And we engage that battle with our strategy of joy because ours is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this church. Thank you for these joyful brothers and sisters. May we go forward from here Go to our family gatherings and our Thanksgiving meals and our jobs and our week. May we do so as happy ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. And may you use us to bring many to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.